0: So, Alexandra, I'm glad that we have someone on the show who uh, is familiar with bonds and how the bond market works. Because longtime listeners of District Sentinel Radio know that in 2019, way back in 2019, which feels now like it was like 10 years ago, uh, but in 2019, we covered financial regulators warning about the state of the corporate bond market. It was around the time of the WeWork IPO flop, and we thought that it was indicative that other big failures were just around the corner. Things didn't quite pan out that way. So can you explain what happened between 2019 and now, the impact of pandemic stimulus, and whether or not we should still be worried about the corporate bond market bringing down the economy?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: Thanks for coming on.
1: Super, super interesting. It's been a super interesting couple of years in the corporate bond market. So like in 2019, basically regulators started figuring out something that I think has been happening since the financial crisis, which is basically that big companies have been able to take on more and more debt uh, by selling bonds into markets. Uh, There is all this corporate debt. And that means that like a lot of companies' operations were basically dependent on markets continuing to be willing to finance them, if that makes any sense. So like if you borrowed all this money to just like you know run your business, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like if you can borrow a lot of money for cheap, why not do it? Uh,
0: if If I can interject, I think a classic example or more classic examples of this are in um, technology. And you have companies like Uber, which of course now um, is in the stock market, but companies like Uber uh, were just running off of debt and never turning a profit.
1: yeah, absolutely. and And well, for them, it's kind of funny because like they don't even need to pay to promise to pay you back for like Uber and the other big tech companies, they're like, oh, if you just like keep giving us money with no strings attached, we'll just burn it. And then someday maybe we'll make some, which is mm. very funny.
0: <laughs> Great business model. I know, right? How do I um, get in on that?
1: <laughs> oh, I'm like, how do I personally become venture funded? Um, but for for the big companies, you know, they're they're borrowing money. So they're saying, okay, we're gonna pay back. Um, everything's fine. And the thing is like, that's all well and good as long as interest rates are low. But, uh, then all of a sudden you have something like say a global pandemic and people are like, Oh, how are you going to like survive for the next three months? So in early March, um, basically what everyone was worried about. Started-
0: this is March, 2020.
1: Yeah, yeah. So March 2020, uh, COVID started spreading. People are worried, and what all of those regulators were worried about started happening. Um, interest rates, like borrowing costs for all companies, went up a ton because no one knew, like, okay, when are you actually going to start making money again? Or like, when are people going to be able to come to your stores? Like, if you're a, if you're a Google or an Apple, you're like pretty much okay. But if you're like a retailer, or, you know, even even like Walmart. You know, people in the early days didn't know if if those stores were going to stay open. So, like, basically across the whole market, borrowing costs went up a ton, mm-hmm. and it was like for every single company at once. And of course, another part of this was that like all the other companies were trying to hoard as much cash as they could because they also didn't know. Like how long they were going to have to basically just like live off of a cash pile without like earning any revenue or anything. Mm-hmm. So right at the time when like borrowing costs were going up a lot and there was like a really big need for liquidity and cash, um, you know, it was it just became like really expensive to get. And, and of course those are like related, right? Um, but basically the whole the whole like race for cash fear about financing companies ended up kind of blowing up the market almost. And so what happened was uh, the Federal Reserve stepped in. So for the first time in U.S. history, the Federal Reserve came in and said, okay, we're going to buy corporate bonds. Um, You know, during the financial crisis and after the financial crisis, they bought treasuries and mortgage securities.
0: but this that, that was part of the uh, quantitative easing plan, was it?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's what quantitative easing is. Of course, they need to like pack as many syllables as possible into, <laughs> into like one thing. They couldn't just say bond buying, it had to be quantitative easing. Uh, whatever, right? But this time around, they did not just quantitative easing, but also they bought corporate bonds, they bought different types of asset backed securities, they backstopped money markets, they backstopped uh, some other securitized markets and they kind of saved the corporate debt market.
2: Well, it it sounds like that, I mean, you basically explained the rationale for all those trillions of dollars that we read about in the news that were being sent out at the beginning of the, of the pandemic but it sounds like that it wasn't really yes the pandemic was the inciting incident but mm-hmm. there the the health of these companies was questioned in the practices that they were engaged in to keep in business and basically finance on debt it had nothing to do with the pandemic
1: I mean, it's it's all kind of connected right it's really interesting because like you know we I feel like especially in like a lot of American political discourse just like you know debt itself is like seen as a really bad thing like oh you have debt that sucks like if you're a person and you have debt that sucks if you're the government and you have debt people really freak out about that um but you know companies sort of figured out after the financial crisis like well we can borrow really cheap And use it to buy back stock, use it to, like, do all of these other sort of financial engineering type things that are, like, really good for our shareholders. So, like, why not? And, of course, that, like, ends up being kind of a snake-eating-its-own-tail situation. Um, But, like, it's hard because it's not just that they had a ton of debt. It's that, like, I think kind of the their sort of power allowed them to take on that much debt if that makes any sense like if you're like a giant company you can be like yeah i'll borrow because like you know i have a ton of money like you guys aren't going to not lend to me mm-hmm. um, but like if you're a smaller company or a person like you can't really do that
0: or or if you are a uh, a local government
1: yeah yeah and companies did get more support from the federal reserve than state and local governments did like you know the fed has tried to argue like okay well there are like structural differences in the markets that make that that made it really hard for us to do that but then at the same time like i think the fed itself has been very hesitant to get into um providing support to municipalities because like they're like oh that's congress's job that's not ours but then like in congress of course it turns into this giant fight over like who's getting pensions and like you know then it turns into like the teachers are taking all this money because they're greedy, you know like it turns into this really weird political battle um and the way it ended up turning out was that companies got a lot of support and uh, state and local governments, until recently at least, uh, got less. So it's it's interesting too, because of course, i sorry about the sirens in the background too, but.
0: It's all right. Only only in New York, baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh, good
1: times. Uh, but, um, you know, the one of the points I think that the Fed made last year that was a good one was that you know, state and local governments didn't necessarily have like borrowing wasn't necessarily the best thing. Like they ended up getting grants this year. And that's like money, no strings attached.
0: And that that was in the uh most recent uh COVID relief package, uh the uh that was passed with only democratic support.
1: Yeah. Uh that that was the and, and there was, you know, a big fight about pensions and a big fight about um you know how that money could be used, of course, that was last year this year again, I think it's just been direct grants um
0: which
1: yeah. Again, yeah as as the Fed pointed out like
0: it's better it is better
1: <laughs> what's that
0: it no it's better um
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: but it it does seem a little bit um I don't know if uh if dishonest is the right word, but it does sort of seem like considering the Fed uh, engaged in this quantitative easing program after the crisis without really any overt approval from Congress, they could have said something like, yes, um, it's, it's giving local governments more debt is not ideal. However, we have the power to uh, give incredibly favorable terms on this debt and say something like, I don't know, for example, you don't have to pay us back for a hundred years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, if you borrow, and, and I think that a lot of companies have figured this out too, if you borrow at a low enough rate for a long enough period, it's basically free cash, assuming that, you know, when that period of borrowing is up, you still exist and people yeah. still want to finance you.
0: So I guess with the, uh, most, recent relief package having been passed and uh, it was a, it was a piece of legislation that um, was relatively much more focused on giving money to um, working and middle-class people than just shoveling it at corporations. Uh, where can you give like a sort of rough overview of where the corporate bond market is now? Because I mean, I feel like I've been waiting for the bottom to fall out since 2019, and and as you pointed out, it it basically did in early 2020, Uh, but things don't really seem to be, like, there doesn't seem to be any indication that we will be back to normal um, anytime soon, so... What's what's the overview like now of the uh, corporate bond market and and where it stands vis-a-vis the rest of the economy?
1: That's a great question. So it's doing great. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, last year was a record year for like big investment grade companies borrowing. Um, they basically borrowed as much as they could. It's super low rates because again, you know, rates have been cut. Like, not that there's anything wrong with cutting rates, but they just like took a lot of advantage. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, this year actually like the riskiest companies have sold a record amount of debt. So that's like smaller private equity backed firms. We've got this fun thing where private equity backed companies are selling bonds and then using that money to pay the private equity firms. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like you know I'm gonna borrow and then like give my owners some money,
0: and and so the obviously that should raise questions for people who bought the bonds themselves. Like where where does <laughs> where's the money gonna go to how, how pay them back? How sustainable? How
2: sustainable is this model?
1: <laughs> I know it raises some questions, but the funny thing is, of course, that like there's so much money looking for places to go that a lot of investors are like, yeah, that was kind of a crappy deal, but Hey, it pays an 8% yield. So like, what am I going to do? Say no, you know, like it's,
0: it's sort of, it's sort of reminiscent of the subprime, uh, mortgage market. I mean, maybe just sort of vaguely in that these, the subprime, uh, mortgages were attractive, uh, for a time because the, the promised return on investment was higher, right? Like if someone has a lower credit rating, then in order to attract, uh, uh, capital, to, uh, to, t- t- to lend you money, you have to promise a greater, uh, payment on that capital. So, I mean, is that roughly in, in the right ballpark of like me just sort of sitting here, tearing my shirt?
1: Yeah. That's, uh, it's stuff. I mean, it's it's interesting because I feel like there are some ways that it's different. Like, but the, there are securities now that are like being packaged with loans to risky companies and then being sold and being assigned a A rating, right? And like mm. structured finance, it's kind of what they do. Um, but of course, when you get you know in frothier times like this, um, you know the the stuff that actually underlies this supposedly like strong investment gets crappier, and you end up getting like people who are basically borrowing just to like pay their owners, like thrown in there.
0: And and we recently had a uh, one high profile failure of a uh, of an investment fund, Archegos uh, Capital. And while that didn't really have any. I mean, it did have some ripple effects, uh, right? I mean, like a, a, lot, of, a lot of stocks, uh, uh, their, companies saw their stock prices start to tank as Archegos was had to sell off their equities in order to uh, cover its, its bad bets. But I guess the point is, is that while Archegos uh, didn't really trigger any wider systemic problems, it does sort of seem like a canary in the coal mine.
1: Yeah, one of the, so the Archivos story is is just like really fun because it's like a guy who got in trouble once, was like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just like make $20 billion myself and then put it all in like five stocks.
0: This is Bill Huang?
1: Yes. (laughs) he he actually ran like a proper hedge fund and had to shut it down because he was, he got in trouble with the SEC for insider trader and market manipulation. Mm. Um, and so until recently, actually, a lot of the banks wouldn't work with him, but then he made enough money that they were like, ah, uh, okay. Can't
0: ignore him. <laughs> okay,
1: well We're friends. again, yeah, that's fine. Um, and so, but I, I think like one of the, one of the issues with, with how, just how fun the story is is because, like, on one hand, you've got, like, all this crazy stuff happening. You've got these, like, complicated derivatives that they're using that let him hide his his equity holdings. You've got... it So, like, the, the way that he basically made these giant bets was with a derivative, so he, like, didn't have to report that he actually owned giant amounts of these stocks. Mm. Yeah, and... I think, but I think what that all kind of hides is that like, there were a bunch of banks who were his counterparties, right? And like, it's one business within that, within their um, business, it's it's called Prime Brokerage. It's the guys who work with hedge funds and other big investors that like to use a lot of leverage. And, you know, what what the story raises questions about for me is, you know, how how big, what what are the risk management practices like within these like prime brokerage divisions? Um, because they're like making a lot of money. Yeah. By basically, and they're saying like, oh, well, like we're not taking a ton of risk because like it's the hedge funds who are the bag holders for all this, right? But then, when you get a situation like Archegos, and all of a sudden, Credit Suisse is saying they're losing billions of dollars because they gave a guy too much leverage. Like, how many other big funds are they giving that much leverage to?
0: Yeah, and and on on top of that, I mean, or maybe just another aspect of the story is that uh, Bill uh, that Archegos, um was registered or was a, a family fund, meaning that it was subject to uh, fewer disclosure requirements and fewer regulations than a normal hedge fund would be, even though they were pretty much engaging in similar, if not the same activities.
1: Yeah, so, and and that that's also an interesting thing because I feel like the reason why those funds usually aren't, subject to the same like disclosure rules is because they're like, okay, well, it's just your money, right? You're not gonna be like losing other people's money. But then, you know, when you've got so much leverage and everything's so sort of intertwined in markets, like Arkagos did lose other people's money. It was just like, you know, the Joe Schmo who had Viacom in his Robinhood account. You know, yeah. like, it's, you know, when you become that big, and when you get that much leverage from the banks, which like, again, is is really the the crazy thing uh, in this story, then like all of a sudden you kind of affect everyone. And, the, and I think the way that regulators traditionally looked at it was like, okay, well, you know, if it's just your family office, okay, worst case scenario, you lose all your money, big deal. But it doesn't turn out to actually work that way in practice.
0: Yeah, they, the the regulators seem to have this idea that, um, you know, if if like that firms exist in isolation from one another, and we saw Elizabeth Warren sort of um get very concerned with Janet Yellen uh the other week because Warren was asking Yellen uh you know, are you going to increase your oversight of of um, BlackRock? Because BlackRock is the world's largest asset management uh, fund uh, company overseeing some $9 trillion in assets. And Warren uh, and Yellen's sort of response was that, well, their activities aren't that risky. So we shouldn't really, you know, we shouldn't really care. And at the end of the day, it, like, can that even be true, especially when you manage like nine trillion dollars in assets that like your activities can't be that risky? I mean, like, and, and furthermore, you're not even looking into it as much as you could be.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, you know, the way one of the BlackRock is like really big and like very above Board from my experience. Like, you know, it's not talking about, like, if you talk about Blackstone, the big giant private equity firm, that's more secretive. You get more leverage issues there. Um, mm-hmm. BlackRock, as far as I can tell, like, within the, I mean, you know, big grain of salt within the financial community is very, like, they're like, oh, they're just like plain vanilla guys doing normal stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, so, like, the most well behaved cannibal.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Asset asset managers have worked very hard to avoid getting regulated by banks. And it's been, actually, there's been some good coverage. I think, I mean, it's been, like, over the past decade, but I remember there being some really good coverage in the Wall Street Journal of, like, just how far BlackRock and other folks have gone to try to avoid being regulated by banks. and that's a uh, I mean, and it's interesting, because it's like you know you couldn't have like the same kinds of regulation, but it was even just like the extent like they were thinking about naming them systemically important institutions, and I mean,
0: which is what Warren was pressing Yellen to do name 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 them systemically important,
1: yeah, and uh, they like basically threw with it as far as that. As far as the the reporting made it seem, you know, I I wasn't on that story myself, but it was really really fascinating to see.
0: Hmm. So I I guess um, one more thing that we really wanted to talk about here, which uh, I was talking about tearing my shirt earlier, um, and I want to give myself more reason to despair. So I figured I would ask this. Um, we're seeing a lot of stories in the news about um, something called SPACs. And uh, there's there's an entire frenzy over the SPAC market. And I, I was just wondering if, you know, as, as a financial journalist, you could maybe sort of explain uh, what a SPAC is. I think it's Special Purpose Acquisition. Oh, I was gonna say vehicle, but that's not right. But anyway, um, Sort of what is a SPAC, and how worried should we be about this sudden uh, upswing in interest in the SPAC?
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, SPACs are, are a little complicated, but you know, I, I think I have hopefully a, a loose grasp on on uh, what they do. Um, so they're basically vehicles that go public with a bunch of money and, and they're called also blank check companies, Hmm. which I think is a really nice description of what they do. It's basically your investors are writing you a blank check to go like buy a private company. Um, and there are like a bunch of guardrails in place. Like if you're a shareholder in a SPAC, you can vote against a deal. So like I mean, so WeWork is talking about doing a SPAC. Uh. Yeah, surprise, very fun. Um, So basically you've got all of these publicly traded company vehicle things that have a bunch of money and then they go look. And if WeWork, you know, still private, they're like, oh, I think WeWork should go public at this valuation. They can use the money that they have to buy or merge, I guess, with that private company like WeWork. And then all of a sudden we work as a public company and you know, they're like investors get a little bit of extra, like, I don't know, something to like sweeten the deal, right? Like they get to vote against deal. They, I think SPACs go public at like a certain price, maybe $10 a share and like you, Oh, you also get like a bunch of warrants um, with the SPAC. So, so you get like all of these, like a little bit of extra, like structural things that make SPACs seem more attractive. But like when it really comes down to like what the SPACs do for companies is that like they make it so you don't have to go through the whole big IPO process in the same way. And it's like, because IPOs are really heavily regulated.
0: Yeah. A lot of uh, disclosure requirements, like, uh, like WeWork filed their IPO and people found out that like Adam Newman would basically even run the company when he was dead, and that and that his wife would be able to fire people if they didn't have the right energy or whatever. Rebecca Newman just bringing the uh, Kabbalah magic in and everything.
1: And he like paid himself a bunch of money for like shortening the name to We instead of Work. <laughs> the, <trademark. laughs>
0: the company paid him because he owned the trademark on the word We.
1: Yeah, it was, it was like a consulting setup or something. He was like consulting.
0: Yeah,
1: he was running.
0: So if your company's structured like this, and you're you want to raise a bunch of capital, and you're like, hey, you know, this whole IPO SEC thing, uh, you know, not for me. How about we do a SPAC instead?
1: Yeah. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you don't have to like go around on the road to all of these big institutional investors and do all of these public filings. You just have to convince the board of the SPAC who then have to convince their investors. Mm. But the rules are a lot less intense.
2: So now that there's been an explosion in these SPACs and companies... Going this route because there's less regulation and headaches and they can, I guess, um, I guess there's a belief that they can raise more money, but it's shown that they don't end up actually raising more money compared to a, a normal IPO process. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but either way, has there been any sort of regulatory response to all of these, all of all of these SPACs forming in this new route to going public?
1: I mean, so far as I can tell, the SEC just put out, like, a little, like, here, investors, you should look at this website if you're thinking about buying a SPAC. Like, what? You should know, which is, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> um, seems, like, confusing. As to <laughs> I, I don't know. I, Check like, out our I facts don't...
2: section on the webpage if you're interested mm-hmm. in buying a SPAC. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's like you'd have to like go seek out like I wonder what the SEC's opinion is on this back on this whole like thing and and I'm not even sure I haven't actually looked at the website because my eyes are blazing over thinking about it. Uh,
0: so it's it sounds like regulators are basically doing the Google is free. It's not my job to educate you kind of
1: thing. Like Google us and we might help a little. Uh, But yeah, I I think that's been a a big, it's been really interesting. Um, And I also don't know, like I'd be curious to know how much of the investors in this are like, you know, normal people as opposed to like big institutions. Because if it's a big institution, you can say like, okay, you guys need to do your research. Um, If it's normal people, it's a little tougher. Mm. But also, you know, as we talked about before, big institutions are like connected to the market in ways <laughs> that like one individual person isn't. so
0: and and it does sort of seem like uh, without opening up a new can of worms here, um it does sort of seem like that there is like an entire uh, uh, section of Twitter that is based on, quote unquote, normal people who get excited, incredibly excited about things like SPACs and and various uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that. In another similar sort of way to bring things back to the subprime uh, mortgage fiasco, that, that you did have a lot of, like, you know, quote unquote, normal people who were putting their money into this and under the sort of idea that real estate is to quote Tim Heidecker free money um and you know land just values never go down kind of thing and um it it I don't know where I'm really going with this just it sort of seems like yes there are regular people who will get screwed on this and if you look at Twitter and you look at like the success win finance twitter types um it's just evident right there oh yeah
1: and the i mean when I started working in the stock market, I heard a lot about the dot-com bubble, and I was like, "That must have been so crazy." And now I'm seeing it all happen. In the <laughs> market. So,
0: so is it is this uh, is this farce or tragedy? I I've lost track.
1: Probably both. <laughs> Maybe it's more farcical this time around.
0: Well, Alexandra, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and explaining all of this to both us and our listeners. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug right now?
1: Uh, not that I can really think of. Thanks for having me. <laughs>